Well, welcome everyone to the 43rd Fireside Chat. Great to see you all. I know you've been following the Kickstarter campaign and how well we're doing with that. Thank you to everyone. And by the time this, this airs, that will be over and I think we're heading for over $200,000. So thanks everyone. Um, we have a few new people here today. Let's start off with Claudio Soprano. Please go ahead and read your question. The other day I asked Tom a question about uh, the perspective uh, from the higher self. So my question is mainly, for example, there are two IUOCs. Let's say Tom and me are not in any PMR. We are only in NPMR. And we can do any communications, we can do any activities. And let's say then I go to PMR. <clears throat> How does it change the communication between Tom and me because I'm in, in, PM, in PMR? Do I go into some sleep mode in PMR or uh, am I reachable the same way? Does it change anything in the communication? Okay, so, so you're talking about two entities, uh, Claudio, that are in <clears throat> NPMR, and then one yeah. of them leaves NPMR and goes to PMR. Okay, so one of them is in the non-physical, goes to the physical, the other one's remaining in the non-physical. And you're wondering about communication between these two when one of them's in the physical and one of them's in the non-physical. Is that correct? Yeah, even though I know from your theory that both stay in the non-physical, but how does it affect uh, the, let's say, the life of each of them because one is in, in having a life on Earth? Okay, well, they both can still communicate, obviously. They both, you know, all consciousness are netted, so they can communicate. And if they were, let's say, very close, um, you know, entities, not just casual acquaintances, but very close acquaintances, then that dialogue can, you know, can continue. It would be a telepathic kind of a dialogue. Again, it would be in terms of paragraphs, not in terms of linear words uh, and sentences. But that dialogue could, in, could indeed continue, even though one was now uh, playing an avatar in the physical reality and the other one was not. The difference would be is that immediately there would probably be problems because the, the infant, the baby, the new one in the physical reality would take a while before they grew up to the point where they were able to have that communication. So first, the one that was, that was uh, isolated. Now we're talking about a free will awareness unit that is 100% um, immersed in its avatar. So it would take a while before that free will awareness unit would be able to uh, reach out and connect to his old buddy still in non-physical reality. Now, he may never be able to do that because he may not develop that skill or quiet his mind or or um, learn to meditate. But if he did, and he did quiet his mind, and he wouldn't actually have to learn to meditate, all he'd have to do is be still and think of his friend, and there, that connection would be, you know, would be re remade again. So if the two of them were close and... Um, had a lot of history together, I'd say that would that would uh, not be hard at all for them to um, reinstitute that connection. 
It would now be telepathic rather than physical, but they could still communicate. So yeah, there, there's not a barrier there. No, but my, my question is mainly from the point of view of NPMR, not from the point of view of PMR. Okay. Like, uh, because my, my idea is that my higher self controls me somehow. It restricts me. It sends me content for dreams. So, and it might some, sometimes maybe intervene in, in my path. That, that's my idea. Okay. So I'm looking from the perspective of NPMR. Um, is there a case that somebody, some IUOC might want to be involved too much into the um, part that is in PMR, like saying, oh, let's see what happened yesterday or next week, or let, let them be and forget about it. I mean, that, that's the kind of question. Okay. Um for the most part, in general, you know, there's always exceptions. There's, you know, the things I say are generally the things that happen most of the time to most people. In general, it's not your your IUOC, your higher self, that would be the one that would be in constant communication with you. Uh, in general, that free will awareness unit is on its own to do its own thing uh, without a lot of help. Now, there is a system and I just call it the larger conscious system. We could break that into guides. We could break it into a lot of other things, but just call that the larger consciousness system. Now it is invested in your success and you know, your IUOC is really a part of it. So it's hard to say exactly, you know, the source because we never get to see the source. We only get to see the information, the data. So let's say that it's this, the larger conscious system of which your IUOC is a part, and it wants to communicate to you because it wants to help you evolve the quality of your consciousness. That would be the main reason. Now, just to be, just to butt into your business and see what you're doing and whether or not you brushed your teeth before you went to bed and, you know, uh, you know, what would you name your dog and all the little trivia of life, generally not. That sort of that sort of uh, communication would be unusual. It wouldn't be very typical. Now, could something like that happen? Yes, it could. Then it would probably be the system trying to get your attention, trying to uh, help you see that reality is bigger than just the physical. But then it shouldn't be always kind of picking at you like that. It should be um, kind of an occasional thing, not a not a daily kind of thing. So if it's a daily kind of thing, I'm not sure what would be the cause of that. It, again, it could be the system trying to get your attention. Um, don't know. So I assume you're experiencing something like this and you're, you're wondering, you know, how it works or why is it like that is, you know, if that's the case, it's, it, it's hard for me to tell exactly in your, in your case, because everybody's different. And you may be out in that five sigma under the under the tail of the curve and not in the in the fat part of the curve. Does any of what I said help you or do you still uh, have question? No, yeah, because I try to fully understand it. Let's say there are two friends in MPMR that didn't go any of them to PMR, right? So they have a, a periodic communication, let's say. So when one of them goes to PMR, 
is like that that bean is in like sleep mode for the other bean in NPMR or because it's not the same communication they had before because now it's either fully or part of it involved in PMR. I think right. that the, it's only a percentage of the bean in, in, in PMR. And it, they can still be some communication between the two beings in NPMR. Yes, so, that's true, they can be. So if the two friends, one of them goes to NPMR, the one in NPMR can still communicate to the other one, but they're gonna have to wait for when that other one is ready and open, for when they learn how to quiet their mind, when they learn how to uh, 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 give some some credibility to their, um, thinking about their intuition, because they're gonna hear this kind of intuitively is what they're going to hear. So when that one in PMR learns how to to accept that communication and deal with it, which may be relatively easy or not, then yes, the two can can continue much as they did before. There doesn't have to be a big difference other than the fact that the one in PMR is busy, has other things going on. There will be times when they're focused, you know, away from that conversation. So they won't always be available. But yes, that that could go on much as it did before. There's nothing to prohibit uh, a non-physical being from communicating with a physical being, you know, whenever they choose, as long as the, so, the one in the physical is, is able to uh, accept and process the information. So let me see if I have it clear. The two beings in NPMR, when one goes to PMR, can it happen that the being that stays in NPMR without going to PMR says, oh, I miss my friend because now he's fully involved in, in his life in, on Earth. Mm -hmm. I cannot hang out with this being as I used to. Does, does it happen something like that, that they miss the whole being in NPMR because That's possible. PMR? It usually does not work that way, but that's a possibility that there may be some sort of a connection, a very special connection there. And, and in, case they, in that case, then they could have this they could reestablish this communication once the one in PMR learns how to support it. Yes, if there's a very special bond between them, that might happen. Now, that is not a typical thing. Most people don't experience that kind of a connection with somebody from NPMR, but it's possible. Uh, it, it looks to me that you always talk from the perspective from PMR, but I'm talking about from the perspective from NPMR. No difference. From the perspective of NPMR, that person wants to continue the conversation. They can. They can say, hello, Joe. Remember me? I'm your old friend from NPMR. And if Joe is paying attention, has developed his mind sufficiently, and is willing to accept that and interact with it, then the conversation can continue. If the friend in PMR is not able to process and, and accept that, then it won't. It will be like talking to a rock. So from the NPMR perspective, yes, it can go ahead and have that communication. It may or may not be accepted. The one in PMR may be busy or may be preoccupied with something else. So it's kind of a target of opportunity. But yes, they could get that. And if the one in PMR got uh, adjusted to it, then it could almost be full time just like it was. So I think it's a, it's a lower degree as it happens when somebody dies from here, because there's still there's some communication, even though it's not the same as before. So they might miss the things, but 
there's still some connection. So it's not like they died in NPMR or, or they are gone. So I think I get it. Okay, good. Yeah, those connections can continue as long as uh, both sides are, you know, are interested in continuing it and have the ability. Okay. Well, I think that's it for me. Uh, for now. Um, Mao, would you like to be next and ask your question? Sure. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Hi, Tom. So so nice to talk to you. Uh, hi, Mao. Welcome to the Farsight Chat. Thank you, Tom. Well, the, mm, this is my question. Uh, it's on free will. Um, let's say that uh, we face... Uh, five choices or three choices, whatever. If there is absolutely no precondition whatsoever or nothing that conditions the, the choice that I'm going to, to do, then the choice would be random because it's, it's based on nothing, right? But if there is at least one precondition or motivation or reason then uh, we'd be at least based or, yeah, biased, excuse me. We, we would be biased to make the choice, if not uh, completely preconditioned to, to make that choice. So uh, I've been struggling with this concept of free will for, for quite a time and quite a while now, Tom. And um, could it be that um, we just think that we have free will uh, because we don't know the uh, almost infinite number of variables or facts that are uh, <coughs> driving us to, to do a choice? Or uh, could it be that we just have like a pseudo, pseudo free will and not really a complete free will? I've been struggling with this concept for, for a long time now. Okay. Uh, I think first I ought to just define free will and maybe that will help. Free will is just the ability to make a choice from among those choices that you know you have. So yes, we'll take the example of three things, a choice that you could do one, you know, A, B, or C. Now, if you don't have any information as to which one of those is what you'd like to do, but you have to make that choice because you're at that fork in the road, then you will make it probably based on something that is, um, you know, you'll guess, right? You don't have any good information. So you'll just guess. And if there's zero information, it'll be a random guess. It'll just, you just won't know. You know, maybe flip a coin there between two and flip another coin to pick the one. That's all you have to do. But mostly that's not what we have. We have, ex we have experience. We have lots of experience. And, if we, and mostly our choices aren't just like, you know, you know the red door, the green door, and the, and the black door. You know, usually we know kind of what's down those choices, where they might lead, what the connections are, what the choices are. We know something about them. And our experience tells us what we think is more likely to happen in those paths, and then we make our choice. So typically our choices are just based on experience. Even if we don't have any solid, good logical reason for picking a choice, we usually have a reason just the same. That's our intuitive reason rather than a, a logical reason. So that is all free will is. It's just the ability to make that choice of those three yourself. You're the one in charge of making the choice. 
Now, yes, there's lots of other things that might limit your choices. Um, you know, a lot of things could limit your choices. Let's say, you know, you uh, have very uh, short, stubby fingers. That's just the way you were born. Then you probably don't have a choice of being a concert pianist because you wouldn't be able to reach multiple keys at once. So that would be a limitation on your choices. But that doesn't mean you don't have free will. Free will is only the the, the ability to uh, choose from those things that you do have in front of you, from the choices that you have. So yes, we do have free will. Free will has to exist because consciousness makes choices. If there's no free will, there's no choices. Then there's no point. Consciousness really has nothing to do. Um, free will is a is a necessary part of being conscious. Consciousness being the choice maker. So free will is is necessary. Uh, in order to be conscious, uh, free will can be limited. Doesn't mean you can do everything you want. And it doesn't mean you have a lot of information to make good decisions with. It just means you get to choose whether you, you know, do down A path, B path, or C path. Sometimes you know a lot about each one. Sometimes you know very little about each one. But you take your best guess based on your intuition, your feeling, your past history. And that's your choice. So free will is a real thing, not uh, not an illusion, but a uh, you know it's 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 the only thing that allows consciousness to to grow. If you don't have free choice, then we can't evolve. Consciousness doesn't you know doesn't have anywhere to go. It's just a static thing with no point really and no purpose, which uh, kind of. There's no point in, you know, there's no point in consciousness at that point. So does that help just defining what concept, what free will is and what free will isn't? Or is there some place that you're still stuck? Oh, yes, Tom, it, it helps definitely. I'm just stuck in, a, in this concept. For example, um, if I make a choice right now, how, how do I know that it isn't based like in a deterministic way that, that I am choosing A instead of B? Because in the past, I made another decision. And previous to that one, I made another decision, you know, like a, like a tree of decisions. And uh, that I have the illusion that I am uh, choosing B instead of A right now, because I don't remember and I don't know all the reasons before this present moment that uh, that leads me that lead me to to choose in this moment you know it's more like a deterministic thing and even in that case uh i don't i think that consciousness could exist because we would be just an, an expect spectator an observer like in the movie theater you're just looking at the movie you cannot do anything about it but you're conscious that you're watching the movie and uh, and you cannot do anything about it but you think that you that you can just because you don't remember or you don't know the previous choices that you made in the past. Okay. Is it, uh, clear? Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's not that that sort of a, an arrangement is impossible. Just like uh, determinism, you know, it's not that that is impossible. It's just that that is not likely in the sense 
sense that it doesn't lead anywhere. Okay, say we're just an observer and we're watching a movie and we don't make any choices. All we do is observe it. Well, what's the point? What's the point? Why would this situation exist? You know, what would be the purpose of such a situation if we just are, you know, watching this movie go on? If we're not making the choices, if we have no responsibility, if we're not learning, you know, from the choices, you don't learn a whole lot from choices that people make in movies. They're not yours. You know, you don't really, you know, it's it's not your learning when somebody uh, uh, makes a good or bad decision. So it's kind of a purposeless, um, doesn't have a lot of meaning, doesn't have a lot of significance. It's not that it's impossible. It's just like determinism isn't impossible. It just doesn't lead anywhere. If everything's determined, then you say, well, what's the point? You know, there is no point. You can't have a purpose. You can't have a point. You can't really have a, a system that's growing and evolving and doing something. It's just a dead end philosophy that doesn't go anywhere, doesn't lead anywhere. So it's not that that's an impossibility. Uh, it's just not a system that is alive and vibrant and evolving and going someplace. There's like no no purpose or point in it. So that's, you know, that's the idea. Now, we in our lives, we feel like there is purpose and point. We feel like we make good choices. And when we make a good choice, we tend to make more of those. We make bad choices. Uh, we usually get some pain from the bad choice. Things happen that we... Uh, that that are not good for us. Things happen that are problematical. So we see the, the feedback from those choices. And from that, we evolve the quality of our consciousness or not, because it's our choice and we take responsibility for it and we take the consequences for it. And that then is a system that makes sense. It's going someplace. It has substance. It has purpose. It has direction. It has possibilities for growth. But one where you're just a... Um, a non-active observer of something that's going on for some unknown reason and you have no responsibility, there's no consequences to you, you're just watching it, well, perhaps a possibility in the sense of, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, there, there's nothing that says that's impossible, but it doesn't go anywhere. And we here feel like we are going someplace. We are evolving. We do have we do make mistakes and do things right. And we do either gain or suffer from the consequences and it's personal with us. So our own experience says that we are, you know, consciousness, we do have free will and our choices matter as opposed to the opposite, that we have no free will, we're just observers and our choices don't matter. One is a one is a live game that's progressing and going someplace. The other one is just a dead end that has no meaning, no reason to be, no reason to even exist. So that's really the difference. So it's not that I can say, you know, that has to be false. It's I can just say that doesn't go anywhere. It's it's not a you know, it's not a reason. All of this exists for some reason. Things don't just happen for no reason. If there's something going on, there's some reason for that going on. It had to evolve to get there through some set of criteria, and there's a reason. There's some action. There's some point. There's some purpose. Things without a purpose just go away and dissipate, and you know, they have, they don't have the stamina to to keep going. So we're in a we're in an ongoing developmental, educational, evolutionary system. 
And there's no reason to imagine that it is a pointless system with actually nothing happening at all. Everything's just determined and there are no choices. That kind of leaves you with no purpose or nothing. So that's mm -hmm. not my experience. Yeah. So it's more like a, in a practical sense uh, and not so much in the uh, philosophical sense or the, the possibilities that 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 could exist in a, in a practical sense and in a, an experiential sense. Uh, we, we know that there's a purpose, there's a reason. Otherwise, all that we are experiencing, all the universe, all the all the NPMRs, the PMRs, would be pointless, right? Why exactly. all this if, if there is no if there is no uh, exactly. way to evolve? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It's just pointless, and pointless things generally don't exist, or if they exist, they don't continue. Things continue because they have purpose, because they meet some, you know, some purpose, some need. That's why they continue. Things that are totally pointless don't last very long. You know, they're they're not. They, they don't carry any intrinsic value, let's put it that way. And another way to look at it philosophically is that in one corner, you have three things that have to exist with each other. They all, they all are necessary for the other to exist. And that's consciousness, free will, and time. Okay, you need time. Otherwise, you don't have evolution. You don't have growth if you don't have time, a before and an after. The free will requires choices. The consciousness makes the choices. All of those things are logically necessary for each other. In the opposite corner, you have determinism. Okay? Determinism requires materialism, or put it the other way, materialism requires determinism. And both of those together require uh, no time. Because if you have determinism, everything's determined. You can't just change things. You can't have free will, you can't have time, and you really can't have consciousness. So the the materialist, determinist, no time group will say that consciousness is an illusion, free will is an illusion, and time is an illusion. That's one camp. Okay. The other side of that is that consciousness exists, free will exists, and time exists, and they say that determinism is an illusion, that materialism is an illusion, <laughs> and the idea that there's no time is, is just a mistake. You know, that uh, doesn't make sense. So you have these two opposite philosophical camps. And neither can show that the other one is impossible. But I just look at it, like you say now, from a practical standpoint. Things that have no purpose and no point and no time can never change. And deterministic, nothing ever happens that's fresh. It's all just the way it was. So it's stale. It's stagnant. It's... It doesn't go anywhere because it's all just determined. There's no, you know, there's no value in it. There's no consequences to it. There's no reason for it. So if you have just a completely dead system with no value versus a system that can grow and, and prosper and become and evolve, and we feel in our own minds that that's what we're doing, it's just from a practical choice to join the consciousness time free will group and say, that's where I am. And I've got responsibility and now I need to make some good choices here as opposed to the other group, which is, I don't, you know, nothing matters. Everything's determined. So what? My choices are irrelevant. 
I have no consequences. Well, what are you then? You're nothing. You're just, you know, kind of dead. You got no point, no purpose. So I'd say join the, join the group where there's a life. The one where there is no life is irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Mao. Did you have another question you'd like to ask as well? Uh, th thank you, Donna. I had another question here. Um, th this is it, Tom. Um, let me see, because I'm reading it. <laughs> uh, well, while uh, studying some uh, spiritual traditions, and now uh, your big toe, Tom, uh, I haven't been able to get this one straight uh, either. Uh, is it about loving others only without loving ourselves? Or is it about loving others and ourselves as part of the whole system? Um, if, I don't, if I don't love myself, besides loving everything else and everyone else, how can I take care of myself in order to be in good conditions to, to love and help them? So in summary, is it really just about loving others or loving others and loving myself as part of the whole? Okay. It's about, it's about all of that. And I think mainly you're stuck in a semantic issue. And let me try to clear that up. The way I define love is that it's about other. Okay. Love is about other. If it's about yourself, then that's ego. Okay, and we say we want to get rid of ego and we want to, uh, um, you know, become love. Well, that doesn't mean that you discount yourself or that you aren't important. You are, obviously. The whole thing that underlies all these words of the loving and, and so on is entropy. We're in a system that is trying to evolve toward lower entropy. And I define that lower entropy being as, as love. Okay, so now I'm talking about your, your actions, your intents. How do you face the world? You should interact with the world seeing how you can help, how you can serve, how you can be of use to others. But that doesn't mean that you don't care about yourself because if you don't care about yourself, you are going to raise entropy. If you don't care anything about yourself, entropy is going up because those relationships you have with others, they require you to, you know, to... Uh, carry your part of that load. You need to take care of yourself. You need to pay that mortgage for your family and for yourself. You need to take care of yourself. You need to take a bath once in a while. You know, you need to uh, do a lot of things that are important in your relationships with other people. It's part of your caring is to also take care of yourself. So yes, taking care of yourself is an important part of it. Okay. But taking care of yourself is just something that you do. It's like uh, that's the, you know, that's that's a, almost a given. You need to take care of yourself. You need to be fit, right? You need to take care of your health. Otherwise, you're just a drain on other people that are always going to have to help you do everything because you're not fit enough to do it for yourself. So mm -hmm. when you care about other people, you have to also care about yourself because in relationship to others, you bring something to the table and that something you bring to the table needs to be fit and happy and, you know, energetic 
and all those things. Otherwise, you're not lowering entropy, you're raising entropy. So love is defined as a low entropy being. And yes, it's mostly about other, but it doesn't mean that's exclusively about other. It needs to be about you. But now here's where it goes from good to bad when it's about you. If your focus is on you and it's all about you and you're at the center of your universe and all of your friends and relationships are also all about you. How can these people meet my needs? How can these, you know, get these people to do what I want? How can I get these people to serve my interests? Then it's all about you. And that's what we're saying is wrong. That's the ego that we're saying needs to, you know, needs to be gotten rid of. So it's all about lowering entropy. If you are all about you and you, you exist at the center of your own universe and everybody else is there uh, only to serve you or, or do things that you want, you see, that's also high entropy. That's not creating good relationships. That's creating distance and dysfunction and making demands, that sort of thing. So that's a high entropy thing. So it's really about lowering entropy. And sometimes, well, all the time, that lowering entropy requires you to also take care of yourself. But for your main focus in life to be on taking care of others. So now we get back to this ego. This ego doesn't just mean your awareness of yourself. When I talk about ego, I talk about something that fear has constructed. Ego is a, is a property of fear. It's a result of fear. It's a product of fear. That's the ego we want to get rid of. Okay. You, when you get rid of that ego, it doesn't mean that you no longer know who you are. When you get rid of that ego, it just means that, that, uh, you are aware of yourself and you're aware of others. You care about others. You take care of yourself, but you're not self-centered. You see, so that's really what I'm getting at. Uh, sometimes people think ego is a self-awareness. Well, mm-hmm. I define ego as awareness in the service of fear. Okay, and you can do, and when you have awareness that's in the service of love, self-awareness in the service of love, that's wonderful. You'll always have self-awareness. We don't want you to get rid of self-awareness. Self-awareness and keeping self at a low entropy uh, position so that you can help other people. You can't help other people if you're a high entropy person who never uh, takes care of themselves. So it's a, it's really a mixture. So I think all the words and the way we say things, the way I say things tends to lead people into, into confusion. So yes, it's about others, but it's got to be about you too, because making it about you is helping others in some, in some way, but it's not centered about you. It's not about your fear. You see, it's not about your fear. It's not about your needs. I want, you know, I want, I need, I have to have everybody this way because I know what's right. And, you know, everybody needs to do it my way. That's not helpful. That's very high entropy. That's not caring of other people. So you really have to do both. And the words are confusing. I, I agree. I can see your confusion. Uh, A lot of people have that same confusion, but yeah, taking care of yourself Having that self-awareness is good as long as that self-awareness is in the service of love and you're part of that. Yes. So it's only when that self-awareness is in the service of fear 
do I call it ego? All right, that was very clear. Thank you. Thank you, though. Good. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Mao. I know you have one more question. We'll come back to you. I'm going to let William go ahead with one of his questions. William? Sure, go All right. Can you can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, great. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking time to answer our questions. Um, so I've got a bit of a open-ended question for you today on uh, procrastination, because <laughs> it's something I've been uh, struggling, I think, for uh, quite a while, and uh, I'm trying to improve it. But uh, uh, I feel like you know it's uh, is it's quite irresistible, and uh, I wanted to know a bit, uh, you know, your thoughts on on this topic because. I'm not sure I've heard you discuss this before. So, you know, what's what's really, uh, what is hiding behind procrastination? And uh, do you have any practical suggestions on how, uh, uh, how we can, you know, overcome this behavior and if uh, meditation can maybe help on that front? Okay. Well, procrastination can have multiple sources. One One source is that, is that people aren't really engaged in their lives. They're just kind of um, you know, watching their life go by as opposed to really engaged in it. When you're engaged in something, you are connected to it. Everything you do and every interaction you have is significant. It's something you are connected to. Uh, the things you do affect other people. Everything you do affects other people in some way. Well, I shouldn't say everything, but most of the things you do affect other people. And how they affect other people should be important to you. Okay, so if you're fully engaged in life, you know, you are interactive in life. You're going out and meeting life, you're making choices, you're doing things, and by that you're growing up. That's an engaged person. Some people disengage. So they just kind of sit on the sideline and watch life go by. They don't really reach out and engage it and interact with it and deal with it. So that's one reason for, for procrastinating, whereas you don't really see that you're living life, you're just watching it go by. Well, the, the, uh, the solution for that is to obviously get engaged. Uh, where the rubber meets the road and growing up is in relationship and connecting to people and in, in interacting with people. And how you affect those people becomes important to you. So if you procrastinate and don't, you know, wash the dishes because you just don't feel like it because there they are and they're dirty and yeah, you know they got to be washed, but later, well, unless you live by yourself, that affects other people. Other people have to deal with your choice to just let the dishes sit there if it's your responsibility to wash them this day. So that is... That is kind of what I'm talking about. If you sit by and let life go by, you're not really a part of it. If you think about those other people, oh, everybody else that lives here will like it better and it'll be a nicer environment for them if all the dishes are clean and put away because that's just a nicer, tidier, neater, lower entropy environment. And I can do that for those people. It's my turn to wash dishes, so I'll make sure I do it right away and you know, as soon as it's practical and I'll keep up with it all day long. So that's caring about them. Okay. And it's also getting you engaged. Another reason that people procrastinate is that 
they don't feel particularly competent about a lot of things that they do. And because of that, they don't do them. It's um, the strategy of I can't lose if I don't play. So they tend to just not get energized to do this. They don't go on that interview. They don't try various things because they don't want to fail. They don't want it to come back bad. So if they just don't play, then it never comes back bad. Of course, if you don't play, it always comes back bad because you never make much progress because you're sitting on the sideline. So that's the second reason for procrastination is to uh, uh, avoid unpleasantness, things you don't want to meet, things you don't want to deal with. All right, you go on that interview and they don't like you and you don't get the job. Well, deal with that. Go on another interview. Keep going on them until you find one that works for you. Avoiding going on interviews is not the answer to that problem, you see. So there's there's other reasons, too, for, for uh, procrastinating. Uh, sometimes it's something that you just don't want to do. And I don't like washing dishes. You know, that's a real, you know, thing that I just don't like. I don't like painting my house or painting my my room or something. You know, it smells bad. I just don't like it, so I'll put it off. Well, when you do that, it usually just gets worse. Whatever it is you put off tends to get worse with time. If it needed to be done now, later than now, it even needs to be done more. So in that point, you are just putting something off that would be better if you'd step up to the responsibility and say, all right, my house needs some maintenance and I've been putting it off and letting it go. I'm going to need to do it. Make a plan, put aside the time and just do it, even if you don't like it. And eventually doing things that you don't like will become easier. Well, that's a self-centered thing. I don't want to do it because I don't like it. Well, that makes it all about you. You only do the things that feel good. That um, comes under the the, the uh, heading of hedonism, where you the only things that you want to do are the things that uh, feel good. So to be able to go and do things, to step up to pain and to step up to work when it's necessary, well, that's a part of life. And it's something that uh, will help you lower your entropy. So that's kind of a, a you know, one over the world uh on procrastination and you can find your own issues in all of that talk. I won't try to, you know, point any particular things out. Um, and you can kind of decide, uh, you know, what you need to do about it. But if something you'd struggled with for a long time, I think you maybe ought to think about getting engaged. How does it affect other people? And things generally just get worse if you don't tend to them, you know, in the beginning. So your whole life will be better. Your relationships will be better. Everything will work better in your life if you if you get off of the sidelines and go engage in it and work with it and deal with it as it comes up. And in fact, after you paint that house or do that maintenance, you'll find you feel good about it. It was a very positive thing in your life, even though it was a difficult task. Then you'll find out that doing difficult tasks and doing them well is something you take pleasure in, something that you that you uh, feel good about yourself. And pretty soon, instead of feeling bad about yourself and like in the dumps, I don't want to do that. You know, I'll just sit there and watch TV. You will want to go out and do those tasks because you feel good when they're done. So it's a, it's just a, almost a lifestyle 
maybe that people get into the rut of not doing, not uh, doing anything more than they have to do. And then you're just drifting, drifting through life. Don't drift, grab hold of it, take charge of it and do it. Thank you, Tim. William, you've got an interesting question on remote viewing that I think might help some people. If you'd like to go ahead and ask that one. Yeah, sure. I'm just, I think I wrote it down yeah, right here. So, uh, yeah, so in, in a previous uh, podcast, you you shared some tips, some practical tips on how people can start you know, to actually taste the NPMR pudding on their own uh, by using either remote viewing or remote healing or practicing at least. Um, so one of your suggestions was to use, for instance, uh, pictures on uh, Google map as a remote viewing targets. So, so this, I found this idea quite nice because, you know, it's quite easy to set up and verify th these targets all on your own, uh, while, you know, maybe doing remote healing, uh, requires someone to give you maybe some targets and tell you how they're doing, mm -hmm. you know, as you, as you mentioned. So, um, I thought about, you know, how about. I set up for myself a goal of uh, over the next three to six months, you know, uh, I'm going to create a list of these random locations and go through them, through a couple of them every day. Uh, and uh, every day I can write down, you know, what my feelings were, what pictures, you know, came to mind, what feelings, emotions, etc. cetera, uh, in, in kind of a journal or log, right? So regarding this, Exercise. I, I have a few questions uh, about the protocol. You know how to do this, how to, how to do this properly. So uh, one of the, my first question is at the beginning. So would it be more productive to uh, compare? You know these results I get uh, through practicing remote viewing uh, right after I do it, or to delay this? You know by a few days or weeks. Um, so as not to get, you know, the ego or the intellect involved too much uh, right away. So I'm thinking maybe for the first two weeks, I just write down my results. I don't even check, you know, if it's correct or not. Uh, so that that's one of the first questions. Uh, well, let me answer. Let me ask sure, them, yeah. answer them as you ask them. Okay. Otherwise, sure. you're going to give me too long, and uh, I'm an old man. I don't I don't have a good short term memory anymore. So uh, I'll just answer them one at a time. There, it's probably good to look at them right away. So after you remote view, it's probably a good idea to go look at it and see what part of it you get right, what part of it you get wrong, because then you can think back and say, well, how did I feel? How did I approach that? What was the, you know, where was my mind? Was I in the intellectual level or at the being level? And then you can learn right on the spot that, well, okay, I was mostly doing that out of my intellect. And I didn't do so well. And other times you'll get it right and you'll be able to say, well, what was what was different than the times I get it wrong from the times I get it right? So part of your process of, of uh, teaching yourself how to do this is looking right away, you know, after you after your remote view, go look at the target and then assess the feeling, the state of your mind, uh, how you approach that so that the times you get it right. You want to do more of that. And the times you get it wrong, you want to do less of that. So I'd say question one is look at them right away. And just a comment on that, you know, another, you can go to the web and look up remote viewing targets and you will find 
or Google remote viewing targets, and you will find several websites that will give you targets. And the way they work is that they'll give you a number. So you'll push a button to get a target and you'll get a number like 372. And uh, you go remote view whatever picture or whatever's going to come up when you put that in. Then you, you write down what you got. You go back and you type in your 372 and up will come the picture, which was the target. So those, there's several sites like that. You have your pick of probably a half a dozen sites that, that will just, they're there for no other reason than to, than to uh, um, give practicing remote viewers a whole set of targets. So that's another way to, to do it. But all right, let's go on to question number two. Sure. Uh, yeah, so how would you go about uh, evaluating these uh, results as objectively as possible, like, you know, to, to, to really tell, okay, was that a hit or was that a miss, you know, because I guess it can get a bit blurry. Like, are there specific things to look at for, you know, in, in, in these uh, uh, feelings or descriptions or uh, images, you know, that that we we might get during the remote viewing. Yes, yes, there are. And what you should do is grade yourself. And this is the way professional remote viewers and those teaching remote viewing classes do it. They grade themselves. Or you can have somebody else grade you if you feel that you're not uh, uh, you're not really a good one to grade your own work because you're, you have a you know you're biased. For the most part. For the most cases, you can grade your own work. It's pretty obvious. Most people can be objective enough to look at their work and see whether it was a hit or a miss. But it's not it's not graded as a one or a zero. It's not, well, I hit I got this right or the other is I got it wrong. It's usually you get parts of it right. You can look, do you have the architectural elements? Like you put down a bunch of circles and does indeed the target have a bunch of circles in it? Now you may have made your circles bigger or smaller or a little different way, but if you get a lot of circles and they have a lot of circles, then you give that some percentage. So between a, uh, let's say between a, a, a one and a 10, where 10 is, I got it dead on like a photograph, like a picture of it. And one is, I didn't get it at all. There's no elements that even, you know, are close. And somewhere in between, well, I got some of it. All right, uh, I put down five circles and there were only three circles in the in the target well you know maybe you'd give that a seven you got the circles and you got you know the fact that there were multiple circles but you didn't get the exact right number so you don't give yourself a 10 for that maybe you get a seven for that and so on so you just grade yourself on some scale it can be between zero and 100 if you like you can grade yourself on how well you thought you did how much of that information did you get so you had an information maybe of of a party of people all laughing and talking and you decided that that was a carnival and as it turns out in your in your uh, your target it was a birthday party well you got it wrong it wasn't a carnival it was a birthday party but give yourself an eight on that because they sound about alike it's a whole lot of people talking at the same time and laughing and noisy and that sort of thing so it's not um it's not that you have to get it perfect but you get elements of it. And the more you practice, the more correct your elements will be, the more elements and the more accurate that they will be. So that's the way you do. So if you end up with zeros, it is nothing even similar, then 
you're not, you know, it's not working for you. You need to try a different approach. But even good remote viewers get it wrong sometimes. This is not a thing that you come back with a photographic image of the target. It doesn't work that way. Good remote viewers often only come back with certain elements of the target, but then they'll get something else and they'll put that in. And if you've watched them work, it's almost the way an artist works. You know, if you watch an artist do a portrait, the first 20%, you have no idea what it is. You know, it could be a, an elephant, a rock, a, a vase of daisies, or a person. You don't know because they're just making these lines all over the page and they don't mean anything to you. But then as you get toward the end, it starts to pull together. And in that last 20 or 30%, it all just blossoms out and you see exactly what it is that's going on in the picture. Remote viewers often will work that way. They'll, they'll do it in pieces. They won't try to get the whole thing. And the first thing they'll do is they'll make two circles. The next thing they do, they'll draw a line between them. And the next thing they'll do, they'll draw a box over that. And by the time they're done, they have a covered wagon that they've drawn. And it's a side view of a covered wagon. And those first two circles were the wheels. And But they don't get it all at once. So that's another technique you can do is just keep revisiting it and see if you get something else and just put it down on paper. The big thing is don't try to guess. Don't guess. Just put down what you get and put down what you get immediately. The first millisecond after you make your effort to get something, that's the thing you want to put down. Not if, if you sit there and think about it, oh, I, yeah, was that right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And you start thinking about it, then you will just have gotten in your own way and it won't work very well. So it needs to be an intuitive thing, not an intellectual thing. Big problem for most people is getting the intellect to sit down and be quiet while the intuition does its work. And we have a struggle with that because that's not the way we run our everyday lives here in this virtual reality. We work with our intellects. So, yeah, let's go into question three and then we'll go back and see if you have any questions on all the answers. No, um, honestly, I think that was, I covered it. Um, yeah, my last yeah. one was, uh, any, any kind of suggestion you might have to make this exercise or experience more productive and enjoyable, but the, I, I think you already covered most of these points. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So did I, did I answer your questions? Do you have any comeback? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm definitely one of these people that, uh, starts to take it in, in, you know, make it work in the intellect, uh, as soon as I yeah. seem to get something. So I think your advice on, uh, you know, Trying to grab that first uh, microsecond where you get uh, some kind of imprint, yeah. you know, and just to stay at this. Uh, I've experienced it one, once or twice, so I think that, <laughs> that's actually the that's a good good advice uh, for this. Yeah. Well, don't don't try to name it. You know, when you get something, mm -hmm. don't don't say, "Oh, that's a clock," or "That's this," or "That's that." Re resist the effort to try to guess what it is from a little bit of data. That just gets you in trouble. Just put down what you see, and then you might say, well, is there anything else? And see if you get something else to add to it. And eventually, you will develop your own technique for doing this and getting it right. But the, probably the, the biggest thing that inhibits a person from being successful at remote viewing is getting their intellect involved, which is the guessing which is the trying to second guess. Oh, I got that, but that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. All that was was just a black blob. All right, let me get something else. And you find out that if you just put that black blob down, that would have been, you know, a good part of it. But you don't because that didn't mean anything to you. 
Well, that's your intellect trying to make meaning out of what you get. You got to get that intellect just to be quiet and let you at the intuitive level interact with the target and just put stuff down the way you feel it at the time, the way you see it, and you'll be more successful. So remote viewing is not a hard thing to do if you can get your intellect out of the equation. And that is a hard thing to do, to get that intellect to sit down and be quiet, because that's not the way we normally operate. Indeed. <laughs> thank you, Tom. All right, thank you, William. Titi, if you'd like to ask your two questions, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm just going to put on my recording on my phone so I can get it. So, yes, um, I am very grateful for the opportunity of asking this question, Tom, because it is on my mind all the time. And uh, it involves my teenager at home who has quite a hard time dealing with anxiety. He is uh, bedridden most of the time and struggling with this uh, beast inside of him that makes him choose a very limited life. It is hard to tell if he's moving forward or standing still. I think he's moving forward. Um, but I don't think I've heard you define anxiety, so it would be helpful for him, I think, to hear your definition. And most importantly, how can he work with it and even get rid of it? And how can I help him and support him? Okay. Well, tell me a little bit more about uh, this beast inside. What is it that, uh, what, are, what are his symptoms? What does he feel? What, is, what, is, what does his awareness say? Mm. He, he, well, most of the time we call it anxiety. And we have also tried in a meditative state to try to define it. But he has a very hard time approaching it because it makes him very scared. Uh, and sometimes he says he, he has a feeling and that feeling is very angry and irritated and gray. And he also says that it gives him um, sensations in his arms and his jaws that makes him also very scared. So well, <laughs> it's it, we haven't defined it really. Okay. Well, I can tell. I can tell you what these things are most of the time. Of course, everybody's an individual, yeah. and uh, um, so most of the time, what's going on here is a person has fear inside. They tend to be a a fearful person, mm -hmm. and. If that fear grows to the point where they have difficulty dealing with it and working with it, then they often will begin to manifest that fear into a being. They actually create, you can think of it as a thought form, but they actually create a being out of their fear. They create something and that something then inhabits them 
and often will intimidate them. Uh, often they hear voices. They'll have, uh, you know, they feel like there's things crawling under their skin. They'll have all sorts of physical things that their hair is standing up, that uh, they can't sleep very well. It keeps them awake. Um, there's just a whole long, long list of symptoms of this thing. But what it is, is their own fear, their own fear manifested into something that now is, comes back and does things to them physically that frightens them, which gives them more fear, which then makes this thing stronger, if you will, bigger, which then scares them more, which gives them more fear, which makes it bigger, which scares them more. And it just kind of, you know, goes in a downward spiral to where they just can't function anymore. They, uh, I've talked, to, I've talked to dozens of people who have this. Your, your son is not a, you know, alone in this. I've talked to many dozens of people. Often they feel like they have been possessed, if you will, or invaded by some outside being because mm -hmm. they don't identify this thing as themselves. They feel like there's some other entity has come and, and living in their entity, in, in their own body. Uh, kind of a parasite, you know, that's sucking energy out of them in their own body. And this is the way they visualize it, that they're under attack from some non-physical being that is in their system. And though that can very rarely occasion, occasionally be the, be the case, I'd say that 90% of the time, 99% of the time, when I have people who tell me I've got this non-physical being that's terrorizing me. How do I get rid of it? Almost always I find that it is their own fear that really is the source of the being. Yes, indeed. I do see. I go look. And my first thought is, oh, yeah, look, there's the being. I see it. And I'll get rid of it. And it comes right back. And I'll get rid of it. And it comes right back. And the more I work on it, the more I realize that it's being self-generated. It's not really something from the outside. So how do you work somebody out of something like that? How do you, how do you take it backwards? You have to find some ray of positiveness in that, in that person's life. Something that's good, like your relationship with your son is probably really good. There's probably a very strong, loving bond there. And that may be a good thing to, to work on. And you try to work with the positive pump as much positive into it as you can and that will give them some courage to take the next positive step and let some of the negative go but just realizing that they have created this monster this being this thing that now they're dealing with is often part of the solution when they realize that, that it's not something from the outside of them, but something they have the ability to let go of, then that will give them some, some energy to let go of it. But like all fears, when you start to let go of it and disown it, the fear will fight back. The mm -hmm. fear will get doubly frightful, doubly scary. Mm -hmm. And every time you try to get rid of a fear, that fear will, you know, puff itself up and roar and show you its fangs and do everything it can to scare you, to make you stop from getting rid of it. That's the nature of fear. It fights back. So he should expect that as he tries to get rid of it, it'll push back and make him even more miserable. 
But mm-hmm. that just means he has to then redouble his efforts to get rid of it. Stop giving it energy. Mm-hmm. Stop feeling sorry about it. Stop, don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't feel like, why me? You know, why am I in this thing? Because all of that just gives it energy. You have to stop giving it energy and start putting the energy into the positive. Now, that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do if you happen to be in that situation. But that would be, you know, that would be my best guess as to what's going on. A self-created monster, if you will. And that monster is torturing him. That monster is doing everything to make him feel bad, to make him hurt, to make him feel miserable. And that's because at a very deep level, he probably feels unworthy, probably feels not good enough, probably feels, you know, insecure. And that's where the fear comes in. It's that fear out of being unworthy that creates the monster that then makes you, you know, dysfunctional. Okay, so in a way, it's kind of the, that game that I mentioned before. I, you know, I, I won't play. That way I can't lose. Mm-hmm. Well, if you feel very, uh, very insecure and very negative about yourself and your self-esteem is not very good, then one of the ways you can take responsibility away from yourself is to have this monster, um, you know, over, overwhelm you or overcome you. So mm-hmm. part of it is just to get him to start to work himself out of it and let him know he can work himself out of it. Mm-hmm. Just has to go back up that spiral just the way he descended and work his way up a little bit at a time. So that's a hard thing to tell somebody that's mm-hmm. in that fix. You know, I have people write to me and they tell me this and I always think, well, how can I tell them that, you know, this thing is a creation of your own and have them accept it and work with it rather than just get angry at me for, for, you know, even suggesting that because here they are suffering and I blame the victim, you know? So it's, it's a really tough thing to deal with, but that is very likely what's going on. And, and I would guess that before this uh, happened, before this, this thing he's struggling with uh, was as strong as it is now, he was probably a child that was not secure, that had uh, um, feelings of, of inadequacy, that wasn't, didn't really feel very strong and positive and didn't have a, a lot of confidence. You know, he just had the opposite of that. He had very little confidence and, and he, he felt that he wasn't as good as he should be. Mm-hmm. Often that's because they have too high, a, you know, they set the bar too high for themselves. They want to be perfect. They want to be everything and they're not. And then that makes them feel bad. And pretty soon, if they feel bad enough, they start building up these monsters that then they have to struggle with. So I'd say that's probably it. Mm. It's not an easy thing to back up, but it can be backed up. And if you understand it, it makes it easier to deal with. Yes. Could you say that one way is to befriend, trying to befriend friends with the monster, To that take might, on walks yes. and to, to do things, although you have all these excited with, within you, now we're going to take a walk. Now yes. we're going to do this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You could do that, which is basically trying to, you know, to tame the beast within, right? You, you uh, instead of having it 
always growl and have an ugly face and fangs and, and miserable, try to uh, try to reform the beast. Tell the beast that the beast is valuable and worthwhile and doesn't have to act bad like this all the time. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that that could be a way of, of approaching it. Whatever works. You know, again, it's all metaphorical. <laughs> whatever works, whatever works for him, use that. Try lots of different things. And the stuff that works, do it. And the stuff that doesn't work, discard it. Mm. Something hopefully will catch his imagination that he can begin to see that he can overcome this thing. He yeah. can let it go. He can either make friends with it and then let it go away, or he can just overcome it by refusing to give into it. Yeah, okay. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Some people want to fight their way out of it, and other people would rather, you know, love their way out of it. It kind of depends on his personality. Okay, good. Then, then he can choose that. It's good to have a choice because he feels like he doesn't have any choice. So, so that's yes. to, to direct him there. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. Very helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm. Did you have one more question, Titi, if you'd like to ask it? Yes. I'm just going to turn off my recording. So, yes. Um, let's see. It's, it's another fear question, actually. Um, yeah. I'm exploring different methods when removing my own fears um, when they rise in everyday life I sometimes open up and really feel them and I talk to them until the, the feeling fades and sometimes I avoid them by for example I burn them in a metaphoric fire when they show up show up <laughs> and when I feel them I get more genuine and authentic but on the other hand when I burn them I avoid going into them so maybe this is the same thing as you just mentioned that you can choose methods um, I was just interested in knowing if one of them is better than the other uh, or if there are other more efficient methods uh, yeah, everyday <laughs> yeah, these are metaphors, and you need a metaphor that, that works for you. So everybody's different, and everybody can use different metaphors. There's another metaphor that people often use. They see their fear as like a big uh, um, a big thing, and then that big thing is really like a balloon. And they just reach out with a pin and poke it, and they watch it just shrink. Oh. As, the air, as the air goes out of it, they watch it just go from a big thing to just a little thing. So that's another metaphor, but yeah. you can you can you can use metaphors, and the metaphors that that happen to work best for you are the ones you should use. So mm -hmm. no, there's not there's not like this metaphor is the best. It's all dependent on the individual. Mm -hmm. So you can you can uh, ignore it, you can burn them, you can deflate them, mm -hmm. you can uh, um, whatever you know whatever works. You can befriend them, you know, like you say, you can you can tell them uh, you know stop. Stop doing this. You know it's it's not it's not good to uh, this way. You can try to encourage them in a way that's positive rather than negative. But however it works for you, that's the thing for you to do. Mm, okay. Try lots of different metaphors. Just what feels good in a meditation. You can you know maybe come to you what would be a good strategy to use with your with your fear. I kind of like the idea of it's something some 
big kind of fierce looking thing and you poke it with a pin and it turns, it shrivels up into a, a little thing that now you can just put aside. It's not that big and scary anymore. You know, that sort of thing. 